Thanks to the team for leading today and Carl putting that all together. Well, it was early evening and we were at a coffee shop in the West End of Vancouver and he told me his story. He said, when I finally got the courage to tell my youth pastor that I was attracted to other guys, I had hoped he'd understand me. I was so confused inside, I was so conflicted about what I was experiencing, and I was so afraid. I hadn't done anything, I hadn't acted on my feelings, I hadn't hooked up with someone, nothing. I was terrified of what was happening in me, and I needed to confide in someone that I trusted. My youth pastor quietly listened to me, expressed my struggle and my guilt and my confusion, And then he leaned back in his chair and he told me he was sorry. He was sorry because our church, our church, he said, doesn't have room for people like you. People like you, he said, as though I was suddenly someone gross and dangerous. He told me that he hoped I'd find help somewhere, but he made it clear to me that this help I needed would not be found in their church and I was not welcome back. My world crumbled. I felt so dejected. All my friends, my safe place, the people I thought loved me and would be able to help me and walk with me was gone just like that. What was I to do? I went to the only community who didn't look at me like I was dirt, the gay community, and I've never left. What a story. I was in the middle of a research project in graduate school, and I was part of a team that was interviewing um, people from the gay community and their relationship with their local churches. And you know what we found out to our sorrow? That story that you just heard, we heard this same story repeated over and over and over again. A story of someone who was struggling. Most often the story we heard was someone who was struggling with what they were experiencing and hadn't done anything yet, hadn't, hadn't actually acted on it, were just confused at what they were experiencing, how they had come forward to someone they trusted within the church and they were rejected, they were essentially thrown out. Christians who had professed to have been forgiven by Jesus, rejected and excluded the very people that Jesus always welcomed, always loved. And that unloving rejection, my friends, is a huge obstacle to faith in Jesus for many people. That's what we're doing this fall in this series that we're exploring. We're looking at common obstacles to faith that prevent people from ever meeting Jesus, from ever coming into contact with the Jesus who loves them. We've explored science. We've explored religion, whether it does more harm than good. And today we're on another biggie. (laughs) The Christians are homophobic haters. As a church that's been called by Jesus to help people, wherever they're at, find and follow him, this is such an important topic for us. Why is it so important? I want to highlight three areas I believe it's super important. First, we need to address it for the sake of lost LGBTQ people. People who need to meet Jesus. People who need to receive his love. People who need to know their value and yet are being blocked from ever meeting Jesus because there are people who claim to follow Jesus that are failing to love them as Jesus loves them. So for their sake. Second, we need to address it for the sake of our own youth, our Christian youth, our churched youth, some of whom are struggling themselves with their own sexual orientation, all of whom have friends who are 
Many of our youth are leaving the church. There's a variety of reasons, but part of the reason is because of the way the church has failed to love LGBTQ people. I was talking to a young woman who was part of our fellowship sporadically a few years ago. I was asking her why she dropped out. And her reason? Because of the way we treated gay people. When I queried her a bit further, I realized that she had picked up on unspoken prejudices and we had failed to show her a better way. Don't get me wrong, she'd not heard hate spewed from the pulpit. She hadn't picked up that kind of, that, that kind of thing wasn't happening. But it was our failure to love. It was ways that Christians she knew, adult Christians, followers of Jesus, would speak derisively about members of the LGBT community, would use jokes or slurs or just flat-out condemnation, all of which contributed to her alienation and will continue to contribute to the alienation of our young people who grow up fiercely loyal to their friends, confused about mixed messages that we send about Jesus' unconditional love and our hate. So for our youth. And finally, we need to address this obstacle because our witness to Jesus is at stake. Jesus was defined not by who he excluded, but by who he included, who he was willing to include, much to the horror of his religious counterparts. And out there, beyond the walls of of this church, beyond the walls of this community here, people see us as homophobic haters. Not radical lovers willing to sacrifice anything, sacrifice ourselves for others, regardless of their lifestyle or orientation or struggle. In a survey conducted by David Kinneman from the Barna Group, over 90% of people who identified themselves as outsiders to the Christian faith, outsiders to the church, over 90% of them labeled the church as anti-homosexual. Over 90%. And the designation of anti-homosexual was applied to the church more than any other single designation. See, they found other things outside of the church. There were things like um, hypocritical, uh, judgmental, too political. That was 10 years ago. Uh, You know, they found those kind of designations. They were out there. But being anti-homosexual was the highest, the most common designation of those outside the church. The most common way they viewed followers of Jesus. This is a huge problem. As David Kinneman himself said in his report on his findings, he said this, I quote, It's one thing to be against homosexuality, to affirm that the Bible rejects the practice of same-sex lifestyles. But it is another to be against homosexuals, to let your disagreement with their behavior spill out in your feelings and your words toward them as people. It is unchristian to lose your sense that everyone's fallen nature affects all aspects of his or her life, including sexuality, and to forget God's command to love people in order to point them to Jesus. Jesus followers defined by hate for particular sinners, not a willing to sacrifice anything love for all. Brothers and sisters, Jesus weeps over that. He weeps over that. Cannot be. So we need to address it clearly and compassionately. Now, am I going to be able to address every aspect of this complicated issue this morning? No, obviously not. Am I going to leave some things unsaid? Yes, I am. Are some of you going to leave today very mad at me? Undoubtedly, some of you will. And I love you. Let me remind you of my goal for this series, the whole series. I want to help you overcome your own obstacles to meeting Jesus. 
And I want to help you help your friends and your family overcome the obstacles that are preventing them from ever meeting Jesus. We're doing this so that people can find and follow him. And everything we're doing today is dedicated to that goal. But before I go any further, I want to talk to those of us in our community, in our church, who are LGBTQ. Let me be really honest with you. One of the reasons I agonized in prayer over this message, worked hard on it, felt kind of sick about it for the last few weeks, is that I am so aware of how vulnerable you must be feeling right now. The fact that it feels dangerous that I'm even addressing this topic publicly. It feels dangerous for you. So for those of you who are part of our church, who are starting to follow Jesus, who are just checking out who Jesus is, who've been part of our church for a while, who identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgendered or queer, for those of you who struggle with your own orientation, who feel fluid and confused in your sexuality, who've been hurt or have been shamed or been ignored or been abused or been rejected, who are feeling very fragile and very vulnerable, just because we're even talking about this, I need you to hear me clearly before I go on any further. You are so loved. God our Father looks at you with a depth of love and delight that is beyond your imagination. Your inestimable value as a person, made in God's own image, and purchased from sin and death by Jesus' own sacrifice, it's unbelievable. You were passionately and completely and utterly loved by Jesus, who became human for us, including you, who lived a life for us, including you, who went through shame and suffering and death for us, including you taking unto himself all of our brokenness, all of our shame, all of our sin, so that we could be whole in his resurrection. And you are welcome here. You are loved by God's people, accepted with open arms on the very same basis that every other sinner present in this community is accepted, on the basis of the sin-cleansing, death-shattering, life-changing, sacrificial love of God for us all. We're all sinners here, all broken all desperately in need of His grace and all equal at the foot of the cross. And you belong. We're your family. We're committed to journeying with you toward healing and purpose and life that is only found in Jesus as we follow Him together. I need you to hear the heart of Jesus for you as we go on. So on that note, let's pray together. Pray for the Spirit's understanding. Pray that the love of Jesus will be poured into our hearts even now as we hear and as we receive what God has for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we long for you to pour your love by the power of your Holy Spirit into our hearts right now. Open our hearts and minds to you. Lord Jesus, we ask that we would just be open to what you are revealing to us as a community so that we can love others with the love that you've loved us with. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you for your thoughts and consideration. What is Jesus' heart for LGBTQ people? It's not a trick question. The truth is, his heart for LGBTQ people is exactly the same as his heart for every other broken sinner in the room, regardless of sexual orientation. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves wretched sinners. Yeah, everyone put their hands up, right? To help us see Jesus' heart, though, let's turn to a time when Jesus showed his heart for a broken sinner that his religious peers found reprehensible, found repulsive, found righteously rejectable. 
By looking at that story, maybe we'll be able to find our way around this obstacle and help others do the same so we can meet Jesus. The story is found in Luke 7, 36 to 50. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. I want you just to imagine that scene for a moment. I want you to imagine this room full of men seated around this, or actually kind of laying around this table, feet stretched out behind them. Imagine the talk that's going on and the conversation, how polite and how religious it might have been. And imagine the silence that fell over the room when she entered. Imagine the stares and then the averted looks. Imagine the smell of the perfume filling the room. Imagine how it felt. Raw and vulnerable. With the only sound in the room, the sound of her weeping heart. When the Pharisees who had invited Jesus saw this, the Pharisees, sorry, who invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, Inside voice, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Let's be really clear here. The guests around this table at Simon the Pharisee's house found the sight of this woman repulsive. Everything about her turned them off. Everything about her just made them feel sick. They lost their appetite. They sent dishes away when she arrived. Everything about her made them want to push her away to get as far away as possible. And Jesus knows this. And so he answers Simon's thoughts. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to another. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, Well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with your tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
What a story. What an amazing story of Jesus' heart for those others despised. We don't have time to dig into all the amazing details of this story. We'll save that for a manuscript study sometime. But let me reflect on a few takeaways relevant to our topic today. First, the religious people around Jesus found this woman repulsive. You've got to get that. We don't hear this story the same way others would have heard it or the man experiencing this story would have experienced it. This woman would have been considered gross, vile, unclean, someone you want to get away from, someone that the, the, the cause of all the problems in their society. They hated her. They hated her for who she was. They hated her for all she stood for. And you know what? They could marshal plenty of biblical evidence, plenty of scripture to support their attitude toward her and their rejection of her. They could easily have pointed to Moses' law. In one place, after listing many detestable sexual practices, commanded, quote, everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their own people. In an Old Testament law, this cutting off meant at the very least exclusion, but often it meant death. These religious folks had biblical reasons to support their revulsion and their rejection of this woman. Doesn't that make them right? Well, apparently not, or at least not according to Jesus. Because Jesus responds to this woman in a way that's completely counter to his culture. In fact, he even breaks the law of Moses by loving her and accepting her. And his love for her was no small thing. I actually think it would have been pretty difficult, don't you? Pretty difficult socially for Jesus to sit there in a meal trying to focus on conversation while this woman continues to anoint his feet with perfume and wipe it with her hair. I'd be super uncomfortable with that. I can't even stand the idea of going for a pedicure. This would be beyond my comfort zone. But Jesus, he doesn't get bent out of shape. He, he sees her when everyone else is looking away. He loves her when everyone else is just thinking she's awful and must be gotten rid of. He forgives her. He accepts her. He wants you to know that he cares more about accepting her than being accepted by others. In fact, in accepting her presence, in accepting her gift, in acknowledging her and forgiving her and telling her to go in peace, Jesus lets himself be condemned by the others in the room. He lets himself be condemned right alongside of her. He goes over to her side of the room, letting himself be condemned by all the religious in the room, knowing that later he was going to go to the cross so that he could be condemned in her place for her so she could finally be free and be redeemed. In this story, Jesus shows us the incredible heart of God for sinful, broken people, the very people that the religious reject. But what about sin? Well, there's no quibbling in the story about sin, sin's reality, sin's effects. And this teaching of Jesus doesn't teach us that one person needs less forgiveness than another, as though there are certain sins that require a bit more of Jesus' sacrifice than other sins. 
No, we all need forgiveness, regardless of what we've done. And if you have traveled with Jesus for any amount of time, with the church for any amount of time, you know this is Christianity 101. All of sin and fall short of, short of God's glory. You read that in the letter to the Romans. We read that the wages of sin, not some sin, not little sin, not just certain kinds of sin, the wages of sin pays out what? Death. Unequivocal. So what's Jesus getting at through the story of the two deaths? Anyone who condemns someone else for their sin misunderstands the gravity of their own. Let me say that again. Anyone who condemns someone else for their sin misunderstands the gravity of their own. The sin of any kind, any size, any stripe separates us from God. That without Jesus, sin kills us. And the reality is self-righteous pride is just as ugly as sexual sin. Whether that sexual sin is homosexual, heterosexual, or just in the privacy of our own minds. In fact, as we see in this story, self-righteous pride is actually more dangerous. Why? Not because it's a worse sin in and of itself, no. But because sexual sin, folks, is fairly easy to identify. But pride, you can go straight to hell thinking the whole time that you're better than someone else and your pride drove you right up to the gates. Simon only thinks he needs less forgiveness than her. But of course there is forgiveness. And this is so, so important. It's not as though sin isn't real. It's not as though there isn't a tragedy present. But the only way that sin can be forgiven, the only way it can be truly dealt with, the only way it can become part of our past is through an encounter with Jesus Christ. The only way. And I'm not sure we're always convinced of that. Are we? If sinners are blocked from ever meeting Jesus, there's not going to be any healing, no forgiveness. No restoration. Nothing will ever happen in their lives to bring them to life again. And what's keeping people from meeting Jesus? Could it be religious people hell-bent on excluding others they deem too sinful? Too sinful to ever meet the one who died on the cross for every sin, for every person, for them. That's exactly what it could be. Through this story, Jesus' heart for people is on full display, especially for people who've been rejected and been shunned by others because of their sin. And in Jesus, Jesus who fully and definitively reveals God to us, in Jesus we see the inestimable value that God places on broken souls. We see his willingness to get in close, to let them in close. Anyone who's willing to come to him, anyone filled with shame, filled with sin, filled with brokenness, they're welcomed into his presence by his love and they're forgiven by his grace. And when it comes to lesbian or gay or bisexual or trans or queer or anything in between, far too many Christians have been like these self-righteous Pharisees, recoiling at the presence of a sinner, unwilling to welcome unwilling to embrace and to love and to befriend the very people that Jesus himself hung on the cross to redeem. And why? Because Christians lost sight of Jesus. 
Christians somehow forgot about their own sin, which put Jesus on the cross. They lost sight of their own wretchedness, their own pride, their own rebellion. And they began to compare themselves with other sinners rather than standing before and comparing themselves with the incomparable, sinless Son of God. The one before whom we all are in need of grace. And they took their eyes off the life of Jesus. As we see him love and embrace people that everyone else despised. We cannot love others like Jesus if we lose sight of Jesus. But with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, our compassionate Lord Jesus, here at this meal in this story, all throughout the gospel stories, there hanging on the cross, if we fix our eyes upon him, we are able to, by the Spirit's power, live out the compassionate love of Jesus right here in our community, right here in our church. So how do we overcome this obstacle? I want to offer you some practical application today before I close. First is that we need to be people willing to listen with care. Now, stepping back for just a moment. For the next five weeks, four more, we're highlighting a little program within the Covenant Church called BLESS. And in your bulletins, there's an insert. Today, it's the letter L. Today is brought to you by letter L. And last week we started with B, which is begin with prayer. And if you missed it, I encourage you that the whole whole premise of this is how do we grow and cultivate opportunities for us to share Jesus with others. And so the first, the B, is to begin with prayer where we prayerfully ask Jesus who he'd like us to pray for intentionally. Kind of one minute a day praying for three to five people for an opportunity to to share Jesus with them, to, to, to have them come and experience the freedom of Jesus. So First, we begin with prayer. And today, it's the L, which is listen with care. And so just broadly now, we know that this is a practice that we want to cultivate through all of our friendships, in our workplaces, in our high school, in the places where we connect with people. We want to be people who listen with care. But I honestly can't think of something more applicable today than those who've been hurt, those who've been abused, those who are so incredibly fragile, For you to be one of Jesus' people, to listen with care, to really listen with care to the people in your lives, especially those who may be struggling or maybe uh, have a different sexual orientation or wherever they are at. We need to be people who listen with care. Second, we need to be willing to repent, confess, and apologize. I believe that as we listen with care, we will discover across a host of things, we will discover ways that people have been hurt by other people who claim to follow Jesus. Now, this is true in lots of areas, okay? But it's certainly true when we think of, of, of maybe some of our gay friends. This is really true. And so as we listen with care and we hear a story told, like the stories I heard, stories told of, of incredible hurt, of abuse, of rejection, of things done sort of in the name of Jesus but not in the way of Jesus, that we stand in the place of the church at that point and say, I'm really sorry that that happened. That was wrong. Would you forgive me? Would you forgive us? That we confess that as sin. We talked about that last week as we looked at how religion can do more harm than good. We run across that reality. We apologize. We repent. We confess. We don't call unrighteousness righteousness. We don't look at things that are condemned as sin in Scripture and by Jesus and say, oh no, that's, that's, we, we, we just do that kind of thing. 
So we repent, we confess, we apologize. I believe that our humility in doing so is part of the way the Holy Spirit helps people move around obstacles that prevent them from meeting Jesus. Third, relationships are everything. In fact, relationships are the only way that we can obey Christ's command to love others as we love ourselves, or better yet, as Jesus defined it more tightly, that we are able to love each other the way that Christ has loved us. It is only in relationships. We don't love people in theory. And for some of us, the way we've thought about or felt about or interacted with the LGBTQ community has been a theory. It's not been because we have relationships and friendships with them. I was talking to someone recently whose way, the way they felt about gay people changed, not because a theory or a book or a thought, but because they entered into friendship with them. And as they got to know them and they got to know their hurts and their pains and their story, and as they joined with them in their spiritual journey toward Jesus, they realized, I now love this person. I don't feel the same way I used to feel. That's only because of relationships. Obstacles to faith in Jesus cannot come down without relationships with Jesus' followers who act like Jesus. Fourth, we need to decide to make loving others our primary concern. Make their value in God's eyes the way that you see and feel and respond to them. And can I just be blunt here? I don't believe that we need to be overly concerned, you know, First conversation, second conversation. I need to be overly concerned with making sure they know where I stand with their sexual choices. Man, I hope you're not doing that in the coffee room at at, at work. Because there's probably a whole lot of sexual practices you don't agree with. The point is, especially based on the studies that have been done, based on conversations with people, guess what? Someone who's in the LGBT community, they're pretty aware of how Christians think about them. What they need is to be astonished by your love for them, by your sacrifice for them, by your friendship with them, by your desire to hang around with them, to be with them, to be real with them, to be transparent with them. They need you to make love your priority. And we need to dislodge this false idea, sometimes presented by Christians, often promoted in our broader culture, this idea that we need to In order to love people sacrificially, it means that we need to agree with everything they say and they do. This is crazy. It's nuts. It's patently false. There are so many things going on in my life and your life. So many ways that you and I need to love each other. (laughs) That if we were required to agree with everything that was going on, we are in deep trouble. If we can't love each other and disagree with something that's going on in our lives... What are we going to do? How are we going to grow? How are we going to even be together? Because I'm willing to bet there's a few things we disagree on about each other. Leaving this topic aside. I actually think, I'm starting to think this is a strategy of the evil one himself. Coming at us from both sides to keep us from loving people the way that Jesus did. Listen, Jesus loves sinners. And sinners love Jesus. And it was religious people who hated them both. Over and over and over again. And so people might suggest we can't do both. But we can. Jesus did. And he's teaching us to follow his example. And then finally, remember. Remember, remember, remember. This is all about Jesus. This is all about him. The sin of someone who's far away from Jesus 
isn't really your concern. It's not yours to fix. You're not the one who's able to save anyone from their sin. You're not able to save yourself. You're not able to save your family. You're not able to save your friends, your co-workers, nobody. Only Jesus is able to do that. You aren't the one who's going to convict people of areas in their lives that are destructive or out of, out of step with who God is. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Your job is to love them. Your job is to lay down your life for them. Your job is to love them as Jesus loved us. Our mission is not to go around pointing out other people's sin. It's to point people to Jesus again and again and again as the only one who can save us from sin. In conclusion, I want want to tell you that showing Jesus' love to your LGBTQ friends can be done. It can be done really and truly. It can be done in a way that leads them to encounter Jesus in a life-transforming way. That is happening here in our church. I'm so thankful for that. The people from across the spectrum are finding Jesus and experiencing his love. This week I read an excerpt from John Burke's new book, Mud and the Masterpiece, Seeing Yourself and Others Through the Eyes of Jesus. And in it, John Burke tells a story of a lesbian couple who joined their church. And I want to close today with the story of how we can be a church that loves people around their obstacles, helps them to meet Jesus who loves them more than anything. So let me read this story for you as I close. Let's just go for fun. We'll see how much we can push their buttons. Amy teased her girlfriend who didn't like the idea of hanging around a bunch of Christians. Come on, Amy insisted. I hear their motto is, come as you are. I just want to prove their Come as you are unless you're gay. Amy had been in a nine-year lesbian relationship that had broken up, leaving her wondering why her deepest lungs could never be satisfied. She and Rachel had just started hanging out when they decided to attend one Sunday morning. I came on a mission to shock people, Amy admits. Rachel and I would hold hands in front of people, but instead of, listen to this, instead of disgusted looks of contempt we expected, People met eyes with us and treated us like real people. So we started coming to church weekly. We kept moving closer to the front each week, trying to get a reaction that would get us rejected sooner than later. When we couldn't shock people, we stopped trying and started learning. Not long after that, Rachel and I stopped seeing each other, but I kept coming to church because I was searching for something, Amy admits. I definitely wasn't looking to change. It wasn't my lesbian lifestyle that I was bringing to God. But I wondered if God had answers to my deepest longings. Problem was, I didn't trust God at all. The more I listened and learned about the teachings of Jesus, the more I started to actually believe that God really did love me. I heard more and more about being his masterpiece. And in time, I actually started to believe it. The more I believed God actually could see something of value in me, the more I trusted him. That's our calling, folks. That's our mission. That's what Jesus has told us to do, to be his people who are loving others with his heart. All people, regardless of what's going on, regardless of the sin they carry, regardless of the struggle they're in, to love all people so that they can come to know there's a God who thinks he is, thinks that they are his masterpiece, 
who values them so much that he would send his son to die for them so they can come to trust the God who loves them more than anything they could imagine. That's our mission. Let's pray. Jesus, your passionate love for us knows no bounds. That you would become one of us, live the life you lived, and die on that cross for us because of our sin, regardless of what that sin was, big, small, socially acceptable or not. You died in our place because that sin would have killed us. You came to redeem and set free all who were bound in sin. And we stand today as your people declaring to you our gratitude and our thanksgiving, our praise and our worship because of who you are or how you love. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would do in us a work that causes others who are far away from you, people who've been rejected, people who've been abused, people who've been thrown to the side, people who've been hurt, that somehow, Lord Jesus, they would experience your love calling them. And that when they meet us, whether that's at work or at school or whether that's on the street or whether that's here in this community, as they meet us, whatever issues or struggles or sin they carry, as they meet us, they see in our eyes the love of you, Jesus. They feel in the warmth of our embrace and the welcome they receive. They, they feel somehow in, in a way they can't even identify that you are present and you love them. May that be true in us, Jesus. May that be true in us. We pray this for the sake of the lost. We pray this for the sake of our youth. We pray this for the sake of our witness. We pray this for your sake, Lord Jesus, that you would do in us a wonderful work that leads to the transformation of others. In your name we pray. Amen.